May we all turn in our Bibles, please, to Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 20. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 20. Declare this in the house of Jacob, and publish it in Judah, saying, Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. Fear ye not me, saith the Lord. Will ye not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for the bounds of the sea by a perpetual decree, that it cannot pass it? And though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet can they not prevail. Though they roar, yet can they not pass over. But this people hath a revolting and a rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. Then chapter 6, verse 27. I have set thee for a tower and a fortress among my people, that thou mayest know and try their way. They are all grievous revolters, walking with slanderers. They are brass and iron. They are corruptors. Beloved, the message of Jeremiah and the position of Jeremiah is our message and our position today. The conditions which Jeremiah faced and the ministry which God commanded him to have parallels your day and our day. Nobody ever thought that the great Presbyterian church out of which we came would ever change their creed. And perhaps the biggest argument that was used to keep people in the church after you and I left in 1936 was that they hadn't changed their creed. And men everywhere said, well, it's a terrible thing they did in telling the members of the independent board that they had to obey the General Assembly rather than follow the commandments of God as they had them in the Scripture. It was a terrible thing, even the church sinned. But we're not going to leave it. They haven't changed the creed yet. And if they ever change the creed, well, then, of course, we'll leave. But we're not going to get out now. And all of you older people in this congregation remember those days. It was a frightful thing back there in 1936 when they told your pastor here in the Presbytery of West Jersey that I couldn't preach in this pulpit and I couldn't take Holy Communion because I hadn't done what the General Assembly ordered that we do and resigned from the independent board. It was a terrible thing. And they put the name of Christ 
up in their own hands, and they use that name to suspend men and to order men to do something which was contrary to the commandments of Christ himself. That was 1936. But everybody said, well, it's too bad, and you people, it's a shame. And if your pastor had only resigned and gotten out from under that, you Collingswood people wouldn't have been in the fix you were in. And it was very unwise, but uh, someday, uh, if they ever change the creed, maybe we'll do something by it. And we never anticipated that they would do it, but they did it. They not only did it, they did it radically. They changed the ordination vows in addition. And these sacred vows that I took and every elder takes and every minister takes, that we believe this Bible to be the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice, is no more. It's been laid aside. It's gone. This sacred vow, which says that we subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scripture. No more. It's gone. They abandoned it. It's not there. And a complete revolution has taken place. Has taken place. Our problem now is to get the impact and the support and the importance of this to the people of this country. That is our great problem at the present moment. And I've already reported to you that the General Assembly was so arranged that what opposition was there had very little zeal or fire to it, and it was just brushed over. Nobody got up and walked out. Nobody filed any protest that we know anything about. They adopted the new confession. They changed their vows. And immediately, beloved, they stayed in session all that afternoon, all that night, until after midnight. And every effort to get them to adjourn was voted down as they went down the road with this declaration on Red China and down the road on this declaration on a letter that they're going to have read to every congregation on the 11th of June. And they endorsed black power and in the international field they told us we've got to double our foreign aid and we've got to help direct the economic life of all these different countries. And they were moving down the road like a madhouse until after midnight, passing these pronouncements, many of which they didn't even have time to read. And now we come to Jeremiah, declare this in the house of Jacob, and publish it in Judah, saying, Hear now this, O foolish people! and without understanding. Hear this now, you people. Ye that have eyes, but you don't seem to recognize what's being done. Ye that have ears, but you won't pay attention to what men are saying to you as the prophets arise and speak to you. I told you people that from now on I'm going to have matters to bring to your attention which will be of great gratitude to us. When I returned from Portland, Oregon to be with you, I had a letter here, a copy of which 
was sent to me, First Presbyterian Church, Lambertville, New Jersey, May the 17th. It's signed by the pastor. A note here says, a copy of the book, The Death of a Church, was sent with this letter to every home in our congregation. The pastor is the Reverend J. Clyde Henry, and may I read you a part of this letter? He wrote his congregation, I'm sending you a copy of the book, The Death of the Church, by Carl McIntyre, and I hope you will take the time to read it carefully. Some may be surprised that I should endorse the book by Dr. McIntyre, for he is frequently the object of much criticism. But I have read this book quite critically and believe firmly that the arguments in this book cannot be successfully contradicted. Then he proceeds to say, I am not a disciple of Dr. McIntyre. And then he concludes after these comments, I am including the statement which I presented at the February 1967 meeting of the Presbytery of New Brunswick in opposition to the changes in our Constitution. My comments were supplementing the written statements were to the effect that if this proposal were approved, the United Presbyterian Church would no longer be a confessional church. That is, a church with a definite doctrinal standard. Dr. Edward Dowie, professor at Princeton Seminary and chairman of the committee which wrote the, the Confession of 67, replied by saying, we have not been a confessional church for years. The seminaries have not been teaching the Westminster Confession. The Board of Christian Education of the Church has not been teaching this confession. This proposal simply recognizes what the church already is. Nothing needs to be added to such a comment. Whatever our denomination may call itself after the General Assembly of 1967, actually it will no longer be Presbyterian, Reformed, or even Evangelical. Dr. McIntyre, therefore, is right. A great and historical church is dead. Something else has taken its place. Our confidence is not in the works of man, but in the purposes of God. And then he concludes, and in this article which he wrote and which he sent to his congregation discussing this matter of the confession, may I just read you what this Presbyterian minister is saying? This proposed doctrinal revision breaks completely with the doctrinal foundations of the Reformed standards. Sola Scriptura, only Scripture, is the formal principle of the Reformation. The authority of the Scripture is the inspired Word of God. The only infallible rule of faith and practice is the warp and woof of the Westminster standards. This doctrine of the inspiration is the only doctrinal affirmation which has been required of all who have been ordained in the Presbyterian Church since it received its present form in 1789 and was a definite and was definitely implied in the adopting act of 1729. To pretend to exalt Christ above the scriptures as the supreme authority in the church is in reality to abolish the authority of Christ in his written words. 
Certainly Christ is the only Lord of the church, but only the Christ which we know is the Christ of the Holy Scripture. To declare that Christ was mistaken in some of his teachings makes each individual the final judge and is to dethrone Christ as the judge of men and makes men the judge of Jesus Christ. The proposed changes in the subscription vows commit a man to nothing but fidelity to his own highest insights. No longer is he committed to a particular system of doctrine. And then the last point that he made, and I wish to quote this because it is excellent. If this proposal is adopted, and now it has been adopted, by the church, elders, both ruling and teaching, and congregations, which have enjoyed liberty in Christ under the authority of the Word of God, will now be subject to tyranny under the administrative control of men who are subject to no objective doctrinal authority. When this new confession was adopted there in Portland, I issued the following statement to the press, which of course was not carried, but may I read it to you. Statement of Dr. Carl McIntyre, the action of the 179th General Assembly of the United Presbyterian Church in adopting the Confession of 67 and immediately offering to all the churches in the land offering it to all the churches in the land as an ecumenical creed and as a basis for the one united church which they envision makes the entire document of worldwide Christian significance. I might say that as soon as they adopted this thing, a gentleman got up and made a motion that we hereby commend this new creed to all the churches of the country, including the Roman Catholic as an ecumenical creed and as the possible basis for this new one united church. If the new confession is right about the Bible and Jesus Christ, then the entire Christian church has been wrong for 2,000 years. Martin Luther, John Knox, John Calvin, John Wesley were all so sadly mistaken and their ministries must now be corrected. The New Confessions offers a corrupted Bible as a man-made book. The Christ of the New Confession is a new Christ, not virgin-born, not sinless, but a social reformer who takes his place as a leader among others such as Buddha, Confucius, and even Marx. The cross of the new confession is not the old rugged cross, for it is completely devoid of any blood that cleanses. Such scriptural teachings as vicarious sacrifice, substitutionary atonement, propitiation for sin, ransom for many, are specifically in the New Confession called theories. The Church of the New Confession 
now determines its own message. And the confession of 1967 will be out of date next year. The new confession separates belief from action with its emphasis upon action in the fields of social and political endeavor has turned itself into an immature political party pressuring to lecture the United States government on everything from Vietnam to traffic signals. The confession has no abiding significance and will become the laughing stock of intelligent secular leaders of our day. Now, beloved, at the close, and it was clear to all of us that nobody was going to walk out and no stand would be made, those of us representing our own Bible Presbyterian General Senate, and thank God we exist because we were the only witness there that raised these great questions. There were some 51 of us that signed what we call the Portland Covenant. It is indeed historic, and we go back to the days of our Scotch ancestors, to the days of Luther in Germany, to the days of these great reformers, when they met conditions of these kind, and they sat down, and they drew up their covenants, and they signed them. And I want it to be a matter of record that this covenant was read from this pulpit on this Sunday after we returned from Portland. And this is it. The Portland Covenant, Portland, Oregon, May the 23rd, 1967, unanimously adopted by the Special General Senate of the Bible Presbyterian Church, meeting in the Cosmopolitan Hotel, Portland, Oregon, May 18th to 24th. In this historic and tragic hour, we, the underside, record our names in gratitude to Almighty God for His mysterious saving grace which has given us an understanding of his name. He called us to be his witnesses to the United Presbyterian Church in the USA. The adoption of the Confession of 1967 here in this city on May the 22nd, 1967, has indeed ended that great church as a confessional body. It can no longer be called Presbyterian, Reformed, Evangelical, or Fundamental. It is apostate from the faith. The unbelief of the 20th century has entered and destroyed its witness. Following the adoption of the new confession, it was immediately by formal action offered to all the churches of the land including the Roman Catholic as an ecumenical creed and the basis for the one holy Catholic Church in the United States. We, the undersigned, continuing in the faith and representing the great company of witness and martyrs in generations past, who by their blood sealed their covenant to be faithful to the Christ of the Bible, the Church's only head and king, do hereby promise our living Redeemer that we shall continue faithful regardless of the cost and preserve on this earth a church 
which will be obedient to him and to him alone as he is presented in the scripture. The wiles, the lying words, deceitful propaganda, with all the devices used by the enemies of our faith at the hands of modernists and apostates shall constantly caution and alert us to our duty to maintain the purity of the gospel and the integrity of the church. We claim afresh the promise of our Savior. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 2, 32. And for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I will be in the midst of thee. Matthew 18, 20. Those of us who are signing this covenant in Portland, Oregon, as we have sought to give our witness and the witness of the Bible Presbyterian Church here, also invite others of like precious faith throughout the land in the Presbyterian churches to come out and to join us. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and for the glory of God, we hereby attach our signature. Now this has all been signed and we're going to take it and reproduce it and frame it. I hope we can hang one here in our own church somewhere. I know we'll have one down at Cape May and in other centers, but this is the Portland Covenant. In that hour when this great church turned aside from its great doctrinal foundations, cut itself loose, and there's nothing now but just the will of the majority. And won't it be interesting when they meet in 1968 and they get up to talk about their confession, somebody said, well, that's the old one, that was 1967. That's the old one, that was 1967. And they get to 69 and they get to 70, they won't have any confession in 1970. And the whole thing is just out here in the broad area where it can be moved and pulled any way that the temporary majority may desire to take it, beloved. And this church where you and I worship, thank God, is bound and established to its moorings. And your pastor is under a vow before God that he believes this Bible to be the infallible word of God. And that I'm here to expound to you people the great system of doctrine that's in this book so that your souls can be blessed, not by the church, but your souls can be blessed by the Spirit of God as he takes his precious word and melts your heart and feeds your hungry heart. Now one of the most interesting things that developed out there, and we were very happy for it, was that Mr. Bob Benoit of Faith Seminary delivered an excellent address on John Calvin, comparing the position of the Institutes of the Christian Religion with this new confession. And he turned up a paragraph in Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, book number four, chapter two, comparison between the false church and the true. And may I read you this from John Calvin. But as soon as falsehood has forced its way into the citadel of religion, as soon as the summary of necessary doctrine is inverted, 
and the use of the sacraments is destroyed, the death of the church undoubtedly ensues. Just as the life of man is destroyed when his throat is pierced or his vitals mortally wounded. And beloved, you look at that description of the death of the church, and I must say to you people, I was not aware of this statement in John Calvin's Institute when I chose the title of my book, The Death of a Church. But what John Calvin describes here is exactly what has happened. Falsehood has forced its way into the citadel of religion. And what John Calvin talks here about the sum of necessary doctrine is inverted. And here we were, 1910, 1916, 1923. These are the essential doctrines, the inspiration and inerrancy of Holy Scripture. There was one, two, the virgin birth, three, the blood on the cross of vicarious sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, for the bodily resurrection of Christ, his ascension into heaven, his intercession at the right hand of the Father, and five, the miracles of our Lord. There they were, essential, necessary, and they were under assault. And now we come to the day where they have a new confession and every single one of these are left out of it. No virgin birth, no heaven, no hell, no blood. Here it is, beloved. And when you get through Union Seminary up here in New York City in its own publication, tells us that what was a bare minority 40 years ago, the Auburn Affirmationist who denied these essentials, has now become the official doctrine of the church. And in your lifetime and my lifetime, we have seen a circle of 180 degrees. That is what is taking place. And the great question and the great problem that confronts you and me right this very moment is can we get this story now to God's people? And what has happened here in the Presbyterian Church is happening in the Methodist, it's happening in the Lutherans. Last evening I had given to me a study by the Lutherans called The Manifesto. And I brought it and I looked at it and got to reading it last night and I decided that it was the same thing that our General Assembly in Portland had adopted and was talking about too. They've got a manifesto and it's moving in from the great areas of doctrinal fidelity into this great area of political and social action. That's where they're all going. And when they finished out there, beloved, this new confession, they came to this report of theirs on the church and society, and then they proceeded to adopt all these lengthy pronouncements one after the other. And the uh, first one at great length had to do with this declaration that they have announced and uh, ordered be read in the churches on June the 11th. This one is Vietnam. I'm not going to deal with it very much at length this morning. I don't have time for it. But as the Lord leads, I'll see what I'm going to do on June the 11th. I'd like to put some big ads in our papers and to alert everybody throughout this area because their pronouncement on Vietnam follows the same identical line that we heard up here in New York City on this day of spring mobilization. De-escalate, stop the bombing, back out of Vietnam. That's what they're asking us to do, and the General Assembly has now adopted it, 
And I do pray and I hope that the if is read in Presbyterian churches on that day, that mothers and fathers who have boys in Vietnam will get up and walk out of those churches on that Sunday morning when this pronouncement is read under the authority of the General Assembly. But may I just call your attention to some of these things which they're asking? After they talk about the de-escalation, which they're asking us to uh, each step, no, paragraph B, we realize that a decision to change national policy in the midst of military conflict is an agonizing one for the president and his advisors. Nevertheless, in the light of the increasing cost and peril of our present course of escalation, we ask for ourselves and our nation, one, the moral courage to acknowledge our obligation as the stronger nation to act first, taking initiatives that will create a climate of trust leading finally to the negotiating table. And then it moves on down with another one, the recognition that with such information and such insights as we now possess, it appears that the immediate need is an alternative to the bombing of North Vietnam. And one man got up and made a motion that they add to that sentence, provided the North Vietnamese also uh, give indication that they're willing also to stop the bombing. They voted that out and wouldn't put it in. So it's a unilateral operation that they're asking us. Now, may I read you this? We understand this declaration of conscience, that is this statement they're going to have read, to be required of us by our confession of 1967. I didn't know that the confession of 1967 required of them anything. If you'll just read it. But we understand that this declaration we're now making is required of us by the new confession. Listen to this quote. This is the quote from the new confession that requires them to do this. The search for cooperation and peace requires a pursuit of fresh and responsible relations across every line of conflict, even at risk to national security, end of quote. Even at risk to national security. Here you have it in the declaration they're going to read out in the pulpits on May the 11th. Then when you get to their pronouncement on China, the whole section dealing with the Red China, they again quote this thing, even at risk to national security. And they want us now to recognize Red China, bring Red China into the United Nations, undertake a great program to help develop Red China, and we're going to enter into a great area of international, they have the name of this international Asian development program, where we're to join with the communists in Asia, the communists in mainland China, and we're going to help them develop their part of the world so that we can all live peaceably together. That's the dream that they have set forth, and they adopted it, ladies and gentlemen, even at risk to national security. Now, it's very significant, and I'm going to develop this whole thing at great length in this country, because down in Washington, D.C., beloved, some of the Presbyterians have already left the church because they are employed in the Defense Department of the United States government. 
and they feel that they cannot be in a church that has in its creed this risk, this offer of risk to national security. So pressing was this issue that the Presbytery of Washington City sent an overture to the General Assembly saying when you adopt this new confession, the first thing you do, pass an amendment and take out that phrase of risk to national security. And what they did after they adopted the new confession was to turn down the overture and refuse to make any changes in it of any kind. Now, beloved, at this point, we find that a lesser official in the Defense Department, appointee, this was not an official action, wrote a letter in response to a question about this in which he said that he did not see that the new confession would encourage disloyalty. The word encourage. Beloved, it isn't that it encourages it, but that it allows it. It's not that it encourages something, but it allows it. And then in order to illustrate this and to try to uh, make people think, well, there was some real basis for it, they came along and they quoted John Foster Dulles and they said that when he took some of his actions that he was risking our national security in dealing with the communist world. No, beloved, that is not the point and that is not issue. When an enemy is assaulting you, when the enemy is after you, when the enemies are talking against you and you stand up to that enemy to resist him, you are defending national security. And you are at that very moment being a great patriot in behalf of your country and your liberty. And to stand up to the communist isn't risking national security, it is preserving it and defending it. The risk of national security of which they talk here is that we retreat, we retire, we de-escalate, we uh, appease. And that's the risk to national security that they say that we must have confessional warrant for in the confession of 1967. And beloved, at this particular point, the confession now opens the doors for the beatniks. It opens the doors for these young communists. It opens the doors to these new left. It opens the doors for these people to come into the church and say, well, I belong here because I can take these risks and I've got confessional warrant for it in your confession of 1967. There are millions of people right now who don't understand. We haven't been taught. My problem now is that you go to talk about these things across the country and nobody knows enough about the Bible to know what you're talking about. But when it comes to the war in Vietnam, and when it comes to our boys, more than 300 of them dying this last week, when it comes to that focal issue, I don't think the people of this country who love it and who love God are going to sit around and permit our boys to just be sacrificed in vain. This country is arising. This country is reacting, and this country still has enough of the God-fearing people in the pews of the churches 
that they can rise up and say, we are not going to take this kind of risk which involves retreat and appeasement and surrender to the communist world. If the General Assembly were going to say anything at all about this question of national security, if they were going to get into this area at all, they should have exhorted the Christians of the land to stand up against this monster of tyranny which is seeking to encroach upon our security and to destroy the liberty which we enjoy in the United States of America. In fact, that is my position. I hope you people can begin to appreciate the sacredness of this pulpit which you have erected in this place. I hope that you people can begin to appreciate just a little bit the greatness of the history which has come upon us. I hope you can begin to picture in just a little fraction what a privilege and an honor it is for us to be able to take all of this and compile it and put it in a record and call it the death of a church. And if the Lord tarries, and I know not how history is going to go, but this is going to abide as a mighty witness in our generation, and we're going to be able to stand here in behalf of the ministry of the gospel which is obedient to the Word of God and the Holy Scripture. Oh, you dear people, and may I say to some of you dear people, a lot of our fundamentalists around the country that are weak, and they say, deliver me from all this, just let us preach the gospel. They're not going to have much time to preach it if they don't watch out. And the time has come when the lines are going to be drawn as never before between the fundamentalists and the evangelicals who live with the ecumenical apostasy and the Bible-believing men who say on the basis of the commandments of Christ, we must have a church which has a doctrinal foundation. And that doctrinal foundation will be the great standards of the Westminster Confession to which our fathers committed us when they came to the new world as Puritans and they gave us the kind of a church which you and I are a part of today. Now let me tell you this little story. Oh, I want you to hear my sermon tonight, beloved. I want everybody to hear but you Presbyterians listening to me, you people who are in this apostasy listening to me, I beseech you to reject it. I beseech you not to live in it. I beseech you not to have fellowship with it. I beseech you, God bless you souls who believe, to come and help us maintain a testimony which is according to this great scripture. And God said to Jeremiah, I have set thee for a tower and for a fortress among my people. Well, while we were there, of course, we not only had our sessions and adopted these resolutions, but we wanted in some way to raise an effective protest, and so we did what we've done previously. Mr. Tom Miller, one of our men up in Seattle, we have no church there in Portland. We have nothing there, nothing. We just went in. And it was so sad at the close of it all to have people come to you, Dr. Mintar, 
Could we have a Bible Presbyterian church in Portland? What do we have to do to get one started? And I looked at them and saw their earnest plea, and I says, Oh, God, won't you give them a preacher? Where are they going to get their preachers? Where are we going to get our preachers? Breaks your heart. Well, this man for Mr. Miller professionally was, took some red, dark red cardboard and then painted in white. So it was black on white. And they were beautifully done. We stand for the infallibility of the Bible. And here these are, the time will come, will not endure sound doctrine. He had about 60 of those signs. And so out in front of their general assembly where they were, there was sort of an ark that came in here, was for the buses. We checked with the police and they said it was all right. So on Friday when they were going to adopt this, we got prepared to join this thing, thinking that this would really point the matter up and make a real testimony. Well, if it wasn't the most interesting thing you ever saw when we got out there. I had people come running up to me, give me one of your books. Give me one of your books. And we had books for them, so we passed them out books. A lady came running up to me, she says, Dr. McIntyre, she says, I listen to you every day down in Sacramento, California. She says, let me have one of your books. Would you sign it? I said, well, carry my sign and I'll sign your book. So she carried my sign and I signed her book. And then they started coming, and uh, will you sign your book? Will you sign your book? Will you sign your book? I went into the press room where I've been all these years getting and the man in charge. He's treated us pretty rough in times past. Turned to me and said, Dr. McIntyre, would you let me have one of your books? I said, I'd be very glad. He said, would you kindly autograph it for me? Well... I didn't have one on me, but I went and got one and autographed it and gave it to him. But we didn't have enough bucks. We'd sent out over 5,000 out there and only about 1,200 arrived and we didn't know what happened to the rest of them. And we gave away every single one of those 1,200. It must be something about the name of this thing. They can't imagine the church dying. They don't know what it is, but they wanted it. They wanted it. The books didn't come, we were so distressed because we are going to have to ship our books back and it cost us over $200 to get the books out there. And then we went down on Saturday afternoon to Eugene for a great rally. Oh, beloved, I want to tell you something. There, there is a company in this country that loves the things we stand for. Just announced we're going to have a rally and go and see them. Trouble is, it's a different crowd. The crowd comes to my rallies one side and the crowd over the General Assembly is another. There's not very much overlapping. And we went down to that rally that afternoon and I said, Lord, do something for us. And here was this dear lady who died, was a member of our wheelchair brigade. And her husband had called and said, I hear you're going to be out here. Would it be possible for you to come to the cemetery and, and take part in her memorial service? And I figured it out, and I figured we could do it, so I wired him we'd come. And so, Charlie, we went down, there were ten of us, we went out to this little cemetery there in Oregon. Sure enough, there they were, out the graveside. And he was a great captain, and she was a great patriot, and they had the American Legion there, and they had a local chaplain. And I came along. Oh, I stood there by that grave, ladies and gentlemen, and I took this blessed book. I hadn't seen those folks before. 
But I preached the word of comfort and the word of salvation there. And when we got through, the old captain said to me, he said, Dr. McIntyre, I must talk to you alone. People drifted away, and he took me over on the shade of a tree. He pulled out his pocketbook and says, you know, he says, Edith, she loved you so. She loved what you stood for. She said, you know, two years ago she gave you one orphan, $120. She said, last year she gave you two orphans. And she says, this year she couldn't afford it, doctor, but she gave you three orphans. And I says, oh, what I saw. Oh, she said, he said, Mr. McIntyre, she loved the Lord. And he said, here's $500 now, and I'll go get the other five. I'll send it to you later, but he says, I want you to get a radio station for her memory. And I says, thank you, sir. The old sea captain, the tears came in his eyes. We left there, went on down to Eugene. I was on the radio two solid hours from four to six answering questions. The capital of, or rather the uh, state universities there where the president of the National Council presides. We went out to this hall out at the fairgrounds and what a crowd we had. Tremendous crowd. Marvelous spirit. Every book... <laughs> Every piece of literature, they just took it like that. Took our material. And when it was all over, we got $2,000 pledged, and a man and his wife came up to me and says, could we talk to you, Dr. Langdon? I've gotten to the place where anybody wants to talk to me, I'm ready to talk. And I said, well, what is it? They said, well, we want to talk to you about something. And I leaned over there, and they said, we've got 13 acres of land out here. Hours. We'd like to deed it to you or broadcast to you. Would you take it? I said, well, I said, how much is it worth? They said, it's worth about $1,100 an acre. I said, sure enough, yes. None of that, but they said, we'll deed it to you. And he says, we think we know somebody would like to buy it. I says, oh, it's a deal. We'll do it. Saturday afternoon went down. Nothing like this has happened. Came back. It was $16,000 one afternoon. The Lord says, here, I'm going to give to you. I want you to use it. Well, while we were down there, this idea came. We talked about a year ago and that if we went out there and this church died, we'd do something to really symbolize it. And up in Boston, one of the boys said, well, if it dies, let's get a hearse. Let's get a hearse and symbolize this thing. And so that Saturday night, it was Saturday night, this thing was going to happen Monday noon. We decided that we'd see if we couldn't get a hearse. Get a casket and put some flowers on it and put a sign the death of the church and we'd take it out there and have it in the front of our line. We didn't think it was possible. Who could get a hearse on Saturday night to use Monday morning? You should have seen these two brethren. We appointed two of our brethren, Dr. Froelich and Dick Reynolds, to do the job. You should have seen those men trying to get a hearse. Nobody would let them have a hearse. And they said, what's it for? They said, well, we want to use it. And finally they came to this last place, and the fellow says, what are you going to use it for? He said, well, he says, I'm not going to give it to him unless you tell me what you're going to use it for. They said, well, what's your religion? He says, I'm a Presbyterian. They told that man what it was all about, and he says, you can have the hearse, and furthermore, I'll let you have the coffin. And we went out there at noontime to carry on our little demonstration, and, and we'd notified the television that we were going to be there, and here they came and no hearse. So we were waiting. I said, Lord, bring that hearse on. 
And sure enough, just about the right time, here came this slick, modern 1966 black Cadillac rolling around the corner, driving up in front of that place with a great big sign on the side, death of a church. Everybody stopped. The buses stopped. Everybody couldn't imagine. They backed the thing out there and six of us rolled up and pulled this thing out with a nice bouquet of flowers on top of it. Death of the hearse. And so we started out. I led the parade. And here they came behind me and you should have seen that crowd. You should have seen. If anything ever shocked them this day. What happened? The television gathered their pictures and that night of the television, 5 o'clock, 5.30, here the whole show was. The death of the church. Something had happened to the church and this thing got before that country. And then after this was all over, the brethren come around and we, we had a di big discussion and everybody was in favor of it. And somebody said, well, if we started the hearse, we've got to take the corpse back home where it belongs. The General Assembly started here in Philadelphia, you know. That's where the thing was organized. And so we got together and we decided we'd buy a hearse and bring the corpse clear back to Philadelphia across the country. And the question is, could we get a hearse bought by 11 o'clock the next morning? These boys went out to try to find a hearse. And they come back and said, Dr. McIntyre, we found three hearses. One of them's blue, the other one's a dark blue, the other's black. Uh, they vary in prices, but he said, I think we can get it at a very reasonable... I said, well, we don't want the blue one, that's Hollywood. You don't want the shaded blue, we want the black one. I says, how much can you get the black one for? Well, he says, I think we can buy the black one for $450. A Cadillac, good-looking thing, nice fixed up, and he said, now you've got to see it. So they took me out at 11 o'clock at night back, back to the hearses company to look over this thing. And when we got around there, the place was locked up, and they had a big fence. And so here we were, the preachers, going down the back alley to look at this hearse at midnight. And we saw this black hearse that had windows on the side, you know, the old kind up to just a few years ago with the nice little lace. And you could see everything. I said, that's what we want. Do you know, by 11 o'clock the next morning, they had that hearse bought, had the thing fixed up. They brought the thing down. I called a special press conference, and beloved, the whole show turned out. All the television, the newspapers came, even the New York Times came to see what we were going to do with this hearse. And that afternoon, the front page of the evening paper, the paper that wouldn't talk about us, wouldn't say anything about us, had the picture of the hearse, the death of a church, and it told the stories that the Bible Presbyterians think the church is dead. Think of it. And then the boys had to get ready to go. And so they're going, and the, they started out. They went down to Oregon. They landed in Eugene. They went to Salem. I got to Salem. I went to the state house, and they gave a copy of my book. By the way, these 4,000 books that didn't come, they did come just in time to put in the hearse. And we filled up the hearse with the books. And they went down to, to Salem, which is the capital of Oregon. They went out and gave a book to every member of the state legislature in the state of Oregon. And now they're on their way down to San Francisco. They're going to Los Angeles. And Joe Pine announced on his show, they brought the thing up there, this risk to national security, that's what's going to shake the country. Joe Pine was talking about, sure they couldn't have put that risk of national security. What a mistake they made. So Joe Pine announced that when the hearse got to Los Angeles, he would interview the hearse on his coast-to-coast -coast television network. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know one thing, they go into a town with a hearse, the death of a church, and everybody looks at it, and they get out on the street with the books and say, we're looking for Presbyterians. And they say, yes, well, give this to the Presbyterians, and then they move on. 
Oh, beloved, we still have liberty. And furthermore, if you want to look at something, just read Jeremiah. See what God told him to do, to go down and stand in the gate of the temple, take his girdle. You see what God told Jeremiah to do. And I want to say to you people, when that hearse comes to Pennsylvania, I'm going to fly out to Pittsburgh and lead the thing in. I'm going to get in on this thing. And we're going to use this to help stir and raise questions and reach the people. And once they get these questions raised and they begin to investigate a little bit, they're going to find out that what the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Flemington, New Jersey said, and he sent 400 of these books to every family in his church, and he's inside of this denomination. Beloved, the hour of history has come. The hour for us to stand and to alert in the great testimony that we made back there in 1936. And I call upon every member of this Bible Presbyterian Church to rise up and thank God that you believe. And don't you be ashamed of your faith. And don't you be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And I call upon those of you who are still in this apostasy, you Presbyterians, you Methodists, you Lutherans, you that are in this ecumenical apostasy, please forsake it from such turn away. And let's preserve churches. Let's preserve our liberty. Let's preserve this glorious faith which binds you and me under obedience to the Word of God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for the message. We thank Thee that we are privileged in this historic moment to speak a word. Lord, we thank Thee for, thy, for our faith. Now, Lord, we just pray that we may see the people, we may get the people, we may beseech the people. They may come out of this dead church and carry on the work of the Lord. And may the members of our own church who have been prepared through, through the years for this very moment, may we arise in our faith. And may we take our staff and help others learn the truth. For Christ's sake, amen. Now, beloved, I want you to hear the service tonight, the day the church died. All right, let's stand now and we'll sing just one verse of this closing hymn. Well, I guess we better sing more than that. 666, God bless our native land. <laughs>
Father, keep us true and faithful. And may thy rich benediction be upon us. Amen.